yesterday morning, I think it was, we had a little exchange here in the question and answers. There was a question that came up about letting go, and we talked a little bit about that together and came up with the understanding that maybe we really can't let go because there was maybe too much sense of self in that, the sense of self that wanted to let go. And we talked about maybe reframing that and coming a little bit more into the uh, attitude of allowing and accepting, letting be, that maybe moving a little bit more towards that attitude of just letting whatever was happening to happen, rather than even this uh, idea that I can let go or we can let go. Because, because already that can bring a little bit too much sense of control or manipulation in the experience, that somehow I can do that. And as we explore and as we sense into our experience, we see that with presence and awareness and attention to what's happening, that the, everything changes, everything is let go of by itself. The letting go happens. Nothing really stays the same. Everything's breaking up moment to moment. We've talked about this quality of impermanence and uh, this changing nature of things. And so as we settle more and more into the letting be, and we see how things are changing on their own or letting go on their own. And so we talked a bit about that. And tonight I want to even go a little bit further because sometimes when we rest into this attitude, this wholesome attitude of letting be, Sometimes that can be a little bit too passive for our practice. Sometimes even the, the letting be, just the resting in that, may not be the appropriate response to what's happening in our experience. Because sometimes the mind states or the emotions take hold in such a way that if we just let them be, they just keep being in the same way, like judging. Okay, judging, judging. I see myself in this attitude of, of self-hate and ill will. Oh, I'll just let it be. And we can see that sometimes that, it, depending on the attitude in the mind, that can just proliferate. And sometimes we need to apply different antidotes and skillful means in our practice that take a certain kind of intentionality and direction and focus in our experience, takes a certain amount of understanding and wisdom, sort of a collection of, of skillful means, tools, techniques in our practice. I was on a retreat at in uh, Spirit Rock at the beginning of September before I came here teaching a retreat. And it was interesting that I was uh, with a woman who 
was really going through a lot in her, in her life and her experience. And she was, she was really in the grips of a lot of fear. And she had a lot of uh, awareness and a lot of skill to stay present with her experience. And she could feel and sense what was happening. But she really had no tools or really no wisdom to know how to work with that fear. So she was mostly just caught in the grips of it. And through working with her and talking with her and guiding her in some ways, we were, st we were able to uh, explore some ways that she could support herself and help herself so she just wasn't in the grips of that fear. Depression is another one. I personally have, worked a, uh, have experienced a lot of depression in my life particularly before uh, I came to the meditation. And that's another one. You can't just let it be. You can't just let it be. It's so, it's so because the depression had, can have such a grip over the consciousness that we can just get pulled right down with it. So I want to talk a little bit about some of these skillful means because the habits of mind, and I know that everyone in this room has witnessed this, these habits can be so strong. And they do tend to, we can feel like we're in the grip. And sometimes we can even feel somewhat helpless or maybe even sometimes experience this sense of being victimized by our mind. And it's so important to have some perspective, to have some understanding, to have some skills, to know how to work with some of these difficult aspects of mind. We've been talking about that in many different ways over the last uh, 10 days or so, working with emotions, working with difficulty, aversion, the hindrances. And I just want to go um, a little bit uh, further, take that, a, a, expand on that a little bit more. I want to read this um, from the 19th century philosopher Vivekananda. Uh, just, I read it sometimes because I just think it, it so much uh, exemplifies what we're really dealing with a lot of the time. He says, it's called monkey mind. You know that phrase, monkey mind. There was a monkey, restless by its own nature, as all monkeys are. As if that were not enough, someone made him drink freely of wine so that the, that monkey became still more restless. Then a scorpion stung him. When a creature is stung by a scorpion, he jumps about for a whole day. So the poor monkey found his condition worse than ever. To complete his misery, a demon entered into him. What language can describe the uncontrollable restlessness of that monkey? The human mind is like that monkey incessantly active by its own nature. Then it becomes drunk with the wine of desire, thus increasing its turbulence. After desire takes possession comes the sting of the scorpion of anger and jealousy, the jealousy of the success of others. And last of all, the demon of pride enters the mind, making it think itself all important, how hard it is to control such a mind. Did you recognize some of those mind states? Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah. That's what we, we experience this when we look at our own mind. 
the Tibetan teacher Sogyo Rinpoche says that there is a Tibetan saying that goes like this. It's a tall order to ask for meat without bones and tea without leaves. And he says what that means is as long as you have a mind, you will have thoughts and emotions. You can't have the meat without the bones. You cannot have the tea without the leaves. You will have thoughts and emotions. And so the the teachings, the Buddhist teachings, really are about the cultivation of mind, the training of the mind, so that we are not obsessed, we're not overwhelmed, we're not um, in the grip of our mind. And in one of the suttas, suttas are one of the discourses that I'm going to be referring to tonight, there's a, a place where the Buddha says, I am the master of the courses of my mind. I am a master of the, the thoughts in my mind. I think the thoughts I want to think, and I don't think the thoughts I don't want to think. I'm the master of the courses of my mind. When I hear that, I get very interested. <laughs> you know, that gets my attention. I want to know how to have that kind of control in my mind. But not from, not control, not the kind of control that we talk about when we're just still caught up in striving and ego mind that wants a certain kind of condition, but a true mastery where something else is in control, not the ego mind, not this small mind, not this limited mind. So this cultivation of mind, this training of mind. The Buddha said, one of these phrases that we all like very much, you probably have heard, that whatever one frequently ponders upon, I think I, the, what, I didn't write, oh, I didn't write it down right. Whatever one frequently ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. And this is a really profound quote. I remember the first time I heard it. It was some ways into my practice when many of us were starting to really study the discourses. And that was such an important reflection for me because I could see how so often I would be caught up in my unwholesome, difficult thoughts of mind, and they would just go over and over and over. And when I really started to reflect on how the mind, my mind was inclining towards those negative or critical or angry thoughts that, that's, that's the, the shape that my mind was going to take the more that I did that. And so the Buddha has this wonderful teaching where he's really pointing to inclining the mind to the wholesome, inclining the mind to the good as a practice. When we witness ourselves getting caught up in the negativity, 
in the painful aspect of our mind, when we see that, when there's enough awareness, when there's enough interest to actually work with our mind, it's possible to turn the mind. And I, I, I like that metaphor of turning the mind. It's actually turning the mind towards that which is good, that which is skillful, that which is wholesome, that which uplifts the heart and mind, that which brings about love and care and wisdom, compassion, generosity, connection, that, that which moves the mind towards those wholesome qualities of mind. And that we can actually participate in this. We can actually participate in this transformation of our heart, of our consciousness, which then, of course, has ripples and not only transforms my own consciousness, but then begins to alter all that I come into contact with all around me, which then the ripples go out and start to affect in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. When I received this teaching, I had an opportunity to practice it because I I spent a lot of time in India. I was going every winter for a number of years, starting in 1987, and I would stay for some months, some periods of time. And for those of you who have been to India, you will know that it can be quite a challenging place for the mind. And I happen to be more of an aversive type rather than a greed type or a confused type. So I get, I, my mind inclines towards the unbeautiful and that which is wrong, that which I don't like, that, that, what, that which I want to change, it shouldn't be like that, why is it like that? And I can just, when I, when I was in India, I'm not even sure, you know, India is, the, is a, is so diverse. It's, it is, it, it, there's everything on every end of the continuum from the most horrible and, and painful and corrupt to the most beautiful and ecstatic, exquisite beauty and joy. I mean, the whole range. And I'm not even sure when I was going there in the beginning years that I could even open to the beautiful. I was so caught in the pain and the misery, and my mind would just lean so much into despair, a lot of despair. Despair about the way things were, about the condition of the people, um, the noise, the, the, the dirt, you know. Not that that's all it is, but that's what I would see, that's what I would get caught up in. And I would reflect on this teaching inclining my mind towards the good, inclining my mind towards the wholesome. And one time I was on a bus ride, and I was with a good friend, another Dharma practitioner, and I was really caught. I was looking at the horses in the road that were just squeezed in with all the trucks and the pollution and the cars and being weighed down with a lot of weight, and I would just, my heart would sink, and I would just get so upset and so despairing, and my friend, would tap me on the shoulder and he'd say, 
Look at that color of that woman's sari. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that bird. Look at the, that, the, the, the blue on that bird. Look at the billboard, the great joy and happiness. You know, he, he helped me kind of to incline my mind away. And it wasn't as if I was then creating beauty that wasn't there. It was that I could perhaps see more of what was there, more of the, of the whole picture, because my mind just kept getting so narrowed and limited in the habitual tendency to just see what was unpleasant and painful. And that became a very important practice for me with his support in, in, in India and the times of his area, just to, to actually take that initiative, to have that intention to turn my mind, to actually turn it, to look at something else in this case. This is very visual, very visual. Sometimes the, the sounds were so harsh, the bells, like in the middle of the night, sleeping next to a temple, when the bells were just going all night, all night, clang, clang, clang. You know, it's just like, or the loudspeakers with the Hindi music, you know, in, in, in the early morning. And, you know, it's just, just, it's just like trying to find some place of calm or peace in myself. So I just would really keep working with that, inclining the mind, inclining the mind towards some place that I could rest, which wasn't just caught up in the aversion. So this is a really important teaching of the Buddha, this turning the mind towards that which is good, towards that which is wholesome. Sometimes this is the problem, right? We do feel calm, we do feel at peace, we do feel restful. And then we can just rest, you know? I remember um, our teacher, and teacher for I think all of us, Manindraji from Calcutta, he would say, when you're happy, be happy. Just be happy, rest, be happy. And it was such a simple teaching, but it, it reminded me, of, yeah, I don't have to work all the time, you know? I don't have to be inclining my mind all the time. And, you know, uh, working so hard with what's happening for me. But when, I'm, when I notice, when I'm aware that I'm at peace, that I'm calm, that it rests, just rest, be happy, enjoy it, enjoy the happiness. But when the mind starts to get activated and difficulty starts to happen, that's when we need to pay attention. This is from... Um, uh, uh, this same sutta, it's uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, number 19. The Buddha uses this analogy, and I like this analogy so well because another one, I'm sharing a lot of things that have really made a difference for me in my practice. And this is another um, a simil actually a simile that, that I reflect on a lot for myself and with, with people that I work with sometimes. It goes like this. Just as in the last month of the rainy season, in the autumn when the crops thicken, a cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that side with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? 
because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So too, I saw in wholesome states the seeds of suffering, and in wholesome states the blessing of renunciation and the aspect of cleansing, purification. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. So I love that so much because it really points to just, um, how does he say, just to, well, staying at the root of the tree, just resting at the root of the tree. And the cows are not really a problem. It's only when they start wandering into the farmer's fields where there can start being trouble. And then you need to prod them and poke them and bring them back into the area where you can see them. And I think about that image a lot, you know, just, okay, I can just rest. Everything's fine, you know? The mind isn't giving me a hard time right now. I can just relax, rest at the root of the tree. But I think it's interesting that the Buddha doesn't say, you know, take a nap, right? <laughs> Only to be mindful. Be mindful that those cows are there. And they could wander at any time, right? So there's this quality of alertness, this quality of presence, awareness, being here, noticing what's happening. We don't go to sleep. But there's a resting, a resting quality in that. So we want to pay attention to what the mind is filled with. What's in the mind? Is there this quality of ease and happiness, loving-kindness, calm, contentment? Or is the mind filled with this greed or ill-will or confusion, ways we get caught up? So the, before the Buddha was enlightened, he says, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, he took on a practice that is described in this sutta, Majjhima he says, suppose I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on the one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty on the one side. I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. So that's how he divided his mind into these two classes. And interesting, in the Pali, there, I think Carol mentioned this, it's the non-ill will. It's ill will and non-ill will. I think there's just the A before the Pali word, it, the absence of, the absence of ill will. But if you think about the absence of ill will, what that is, is loving kindness. So when the mind is absent of ill will, it's filled with loving kindness. There's an attitude of love and care in that when there's no ill will. In the absence of cruelty, what's there is karuna, compassion, from not acting in a cruel way, in a harsh way, 
in a hurtful way, then there's this, this uh, movement of compassion in the heart-mind. So these two sets, these two classes of thought. So first it requires this discriminating awareness that we actually, actually are able to discriminate what's in the mind. What set, what side, what side is in the mind right now? And then the Buddha went on in this practice to reflect on the consequences of either set of thoughts. He said when there were the unwholesome or the more negative, the painful thoughts in the mind, he reflected that these these thoughts lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction, to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom causes difficulties, leads away from Nibbana. Mm -hmm. And then he reflected on the consequences of the wholesome set in the mind in the same way. He said, these thoughts do not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. These thoughts aid in wisdom They do not cause difficulty, and they lead to Nibbāna. They lead towards Nibbāna. And he points out how important this reflection is. And I know this happens for us in our practice, where we actually, when we're sensitive, when we can feel, we can feel the effect, the affect of these different thoughts when they arise in our mind, in our heart. We can feel how the more unwholesome, unskillful thoughts actually can create a kind of contraction, a tightness, a dis-ease in different parts of the body, in the mind, in the head, in the heart, in the belly, in our body. You can feel it in the muscles, this kind of contraction pulling in when there's this kind of negativity in the mind. And we want to know this. We want to see this and to feel this, this consequence of these kinds of thoughts in the mind. And not just thoughts, we've been speaking about attitude, and it's these kinds of thoughts that can bring about an attitude, even a a kind of a mood or a mind state where we feel this kind of contraction in ourselves. We want to notice that. And then noticing, too, the opposite, when the mind is free, the absence of this kind of negativity, uh, this kind of pain in the mind, when the mind is actually filled with renunciation, letting go. This, uh, uh, when we speak of renunciation, it's, a, it's again this open-handedness, this letting go. When the mind is filled with non-ill will or with love, loving-kindness filled with compassion, of care. What kind of experience is that for us? How does that feel? And when we bring our awareness fully into presence and feel that, we can feel how the body starts to expand, relax, open, particularly around the heart, the head, the belly, the muscles. We can feel a whole kind of inner relaxation, 
eventually we actually can act, we can feel it at a cellular level of our being where we where everything just seems like it's starting to open up and even that sense of being so kind of how we feel ourselves more as a dense or gross kind of organism we might start to feel ourselves as lighter and more refined and maybe the boundaries of our of our body and how we know ourselves aren't as quite as defined and that sense of uh, 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 where we end and other things begin can start to dissolve a little bit and we we can we can start to feel quite light when the when the mind and the heart is open in that way I'm just reminded of this of this phrase that I've heard that that says that um, the reason that angels can fly is because they take themselves lightly. You know. And that's that kind of feeling, that expression of, the, of an open heart and mind when, when we are not so caught up and we're not so bound up. And so in understanding these sets, we can start to discriminate and pay more attention because if we want to understand the, the causes of suffering, what gives rise to our pain, what gives rise to the, not only our pain, as the Buddha says, but the pain of others who might be in our company or associated with us because of where we're at in ourselves, we can start to have an effect on that through our understanding, through our clarity about how things work, how the mind works, how karma works, how uh, reality works, you know, we can start to tease it apart. When the Buddha was talking about the consequences of the wholesome thoughts, he said, the, one, the, the, the next phrase he said is, if I think and ponder upon these thoughts, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night or day, I see nothing to fear from it. I see nothing to fear from it. So again, you know, this, this wisdom that sees what to follow and what not to follow. What to lean into, what to lean away from. So again, and not just this letting be, but there's a more active kind of the, where the wisdom factor, the wisdom actually engages in a response, a skillful response to help us release, help us open up, so that we're not quite as caught in these habits of mind. This path is one of the cultivation of wisdom, the deepening of wisdom. And so these are, um, ways that we can explore our experience so that we can have deeper insight into the way things are and then we can apply the wisdom of our insights when we find ourselves in difficult experiences but not only difficult experiences but when we find ourselves in expanded experiences when we really are connected with the good when we're connected with the wholesome we want to know that because we want to encourage that. We want to allow that. We don't want to interfere 
We want to encourage that to grow in our heart, in our being. So this application, applying these skillful means through our wisdom, through our understanding, knowing how to work with our mind in these difficulties. In another um, discourse, the Buddha speaks about um, five ways of working with these, what's called distracting thoughts or persistent thought. Um, the, the, the title of this discourse is uh, translated as the removal of distracting thoughts. We, we like that. We like the removal of them. And this is particularly when the unwholesome thoughts are persistent or obtrusive, where we really do feel caught in these thoughts. And we're given these five suggestions. And these are these different kinds of mind states that I spoke about, where, you know, judging or anger, greed, when the greed is strong in the mind, or fear, um, even depression, when we, when we get caught in a mood and some very deeper, much more deep negative kind of thoughts or unworthiness or self-hate. And we just feel pulled down by it. And we don't really see uh, or have a clear sense of how to work with this. So these are very helpful suggestions. And I want to say that we can only apply the, the wisdom of our insights, we can only work with our experience if there's some awareness. That's where, if we're completely caught and completely identified in what's happening, and we're really taking that to be who I am, and taking the whole situation to be as it is, and there isn't really the sense of, well, wait a minute, let's just stop for a second, take a breath, and see what's going on here. Just having that connection with a sense of presence, then we can begin to apply the wisdom of our insights. <laughs> And of course, that gives rise to the question of, well, what happens if that doesn't come? <laughs> I mean, what if, what if we are just caught? What if we are just overwhelmed? And it's a really interesting question because in a way, there isn't anything we can do. And it's been very important for me to let this in as a truth that when I am really caught and really overwhelmed or in, really in the grips of fear or my anger or aversion or whatever it is, sometimes there's nothing I can do because there isn't the awareness, the wisdom isn't strong enough in that moment to come in to begin to work with the situation. And so then, hopefully, at least there's enough cultivation of some care and some love some compassion, which is already a movement of some wisdom, clearly. And yet sometimes that's the first thing that comes in. If we can at least, if there's, there's some possibility of the heart opening in the care that there's nothing I can do. We can be, we can be held in that 
that wisdom aspect. But sometimes that's not even there. As you know, sometimes the judge comes in. There's more aversion towards the situation. We feel aversion towards the aversion, and then we feel aversion towards the aversion towards the aversion. And then that goes out even more, and we are in the grips of that whole hindrance attack. So, so then, you know, if, <laughs> if there's any seeds of wisdom there, then what we can say to ourselves is just wait. Just don't do anything. If we can just not act out from this place and get ourselves in more of a tangle, but even that might not be there. You see, the wisdom has to come in at some point for there to be any transformation, for there to be any change. Otherwise, we're caught. Now, the good news, especially for Dharma practitioners, is that it's likely that at some point, something's going, some wisdom is going to kick in. And, 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 you know, this is, we just keep working with patience and loving kindness and metta and anything that we can take hold of in that moment, any way that we can, any, any way that there may be some sense of responding to that situation. But it helps me to actually reflect on the fact that sometimes I may be so much in the grips that there's nothing I can do. Because if I really understand that, maybe I won't give myself such a hard time. Maybe just that piece of information, rather than laying more on top of the situation, more hate, more judgment, more negativity, more this, more that. So sometimes just stopping, breathing. But you see, everything I say is some kind of skillful response. So we see, we have to see what, what pokes through, what comes through. So here are these five suggestions, five um, um, antidotes. I'll just say first what they are, and then I'll talk just a little bit about each one. The first one's replacing, the second one's reflecting, the third one is forgetting, the fourth one is stilling, and the last one is clenching. That's the shorthand. So I'll say just a little bit about each one. So the first one, and the, the Buddha actually talks about them in a kind of order, so if one doesn't work, try the next. But we can work with any one of them. If any, any response comes, we're lucky, right? So, so any one of these can be helpful at any time. So the first one is replacing. So this is actually replacing the thought with replacing the unwholesome thought, the thought that is imbued with desire or aversion or confusion, replacing that thought with a wholesome thought, right? Just that. I remember the first time I read this and I went, wow, that's just like so new age. I mean, isn't that what like everybody's talking about? You just like think good thoughts or affirming thoughts or, you know, happy thoughts or, but that's what the Buddha is talking about here is you basically <laughs> replace one thought for another thought. Uh, the translation is if you're, um, uh, 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 if you're attending to one subject, that is a difficult subject that's connected with the unwholesome attend to another subject that's connected to the wholesome. 
So an example of that would be like metta practice, right? So we often suggest when we're down on ourselves, giving ourselves a hard time, um, not so much in connection to do metta, send metta thoughts, metaphor thoughts to yourself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I be at ease. You know, and just the repetition of those thoughts, they, they start to work. They can work in the heart and the mind to shift that uh, attitude, that environment of the, of the mind. If we find that we are being stingy or possessive, and we notice that, we feel that contraction, we can actually just shift that to being more generous, having more generous thoughts, or more generous attitude, one that, oh, well, I'll, I'll do something nice. You know, I'll do something caring. Uh-huh. Or if I'm feeling you know, ungrateful, and I'm kind of, woe is me, and I'm feeling unhappy, Maybe spending some time and thinking the, about the things that you can be grateful for, the things that are good in your life. You know, that kind of replacing your thought. This, the simile is just as a carpenter or his apprentice would use a fine peg to knock out, drive out, or pull out a coarse one. You know, using something finer to get rid of the coarse peg there. So the first one, replacing. And then if while inclining the mind towards the wholesome still isn't working and the difficult thoughts are still arising, the second one is reflecting, reflecting on the consequences, as the Buddha suggested in the other discourse. Reflecting that the more that I dwell on these thoughts and the more I am caught in this attitude of mind, this leads to suffering. This is leading to pain. And we can really let ourselves feel the contraction, feel the dukkha, feel that uh, experience that's happening when the mind is inclining towards these thoughts, and reflect on that pain. And the simile is just as a, oh, this one's, this is an interesting one. This, just as a man or woman, youthful and fond of ornaments, would be horrified and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were, were hung around his or her neck. <laughs> right? <laughs> Reflect on that. That, wouldn't, that would be kind of humiliating or <laughs> shocking or, you know. When I read that analogy, I thought another example would be and maybe you've heard this sometimes, is that what if, what if someone, what if we had a loudspeaker connected to our brain and that everything that we thought was projected out into the room, right? Reflect on that, you know, reflecting on the consequences of these thoughts. So the second one is the reflecting. The third one is this forgetting. So if these difficult thoughts are still arising, it's actually turning the attention away from the difficult thoughts. It's turning the mind away. So it just says, forget, not give attention to, look away. Look away, Go, just don't give attention to it. And this one is really quite important to me 
because sometimes just looking away isn't enough, right? You know, right, I'm just going to look away as if it's going to go away. But sometimes the mind needs support. It needs something else to latch onto, to touch onto. So an example of this would be, say that I am feeling a lot of pain, maybe pain in my knee, and it's really clutching, it's really tightening, and there's aversion in the mind. So the turning away from that would be maybe just feeling some of the touch points in the body, feeling maybe a more neutral place in the body, a place that isn't so hot or so tense or so tight. So I'm actually turning the mind towards something that's more neutral. Or maybe opening my eyes and maybe just even glancing around the room and feeling a little bit more of the relaxation. So it's actually turning that attention away. Uh, sometimes if it might be stronger, like if I'm a lot of, in a lot of fear and that is really painful and gripping, I might not be able to sit with that. So I'll turn away. I might go for a walk or, or sit somewhere in the woods that feels uh, very nourishing or um, uh, see the birds and listen to the birds, something that's going to uplift my heart. So this turning away, turning away, it's a kind of a com combination of the replacing and the forgetting together. So, so that you're, you're just moving away. I also call it a kind of skillful distraction. If there's a wisdom element in it, the wisdom that knows that it's better if the mind is over here. And sometimes this doesn't get emphasized enough because I think that we, we may think again that we just have to let it be, right? I just have to be sitting here with the fear. I just have to be sitting here with the judgment or the anger, whatever it is. And that's fine, and we certainly do encourage that. And there's a lot of skillful means for ex extending our capacity to be able to sit with unpleasant experience, both physical and emotional. And sometimes there is not the capacity of mind to be able to stay in any, in any kind of awareness and wisdom without just getting completely overwhelmed and, and uh, uh, pushed down into more and more pain and suffering. And so sometimes it's skillful to turn away, move away, change the circumstances. Even, you know, sometimes we say you just shift the body, move the body, so you don't have to just think you have to stay in that one posture. So we take some time at that edge, that edge of our experience where it may be too much, but maybe not, just to stay there and see, well, what's the most, what's going to support my practice right now in terms of opening, expanding, uh, resting, deepening my wisdom and understanding? What's going to support that? And, 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 it's, and it's good to know that there isn't only one way. Sometimes we move in when we can. Sometimes we move back if we need to. We move out. So the Buddha speaks about this too. The fourth one is stilling. And this is about attending to relaxing the thought formations. Just when, the, when there's that grip in the mind, in the, in, the, in the motions, the body, we just see if we can bring some 
uh, a capacity to begin to relax that grip and to soften that and to begin to still that uh, uh, repetitive or more gross pattern of, of mind there. And I really like the analogy, or maybe it's a simile. I always get those two mixed up, this simile. Just as a thought would occur to a woman walking quickly, why am I walking quickly? Why don't I walk slowly? So she walks slowly. Then she might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And she would stand. And then she might consider, why am I standing? Why don't I sit down? So she sits down. Why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? And I really love that. I mean, even as I, as I, as I read it and consider it, it's just getting more and more and more still and relaxed and rested. Why don't I lie down? So that same kind of sequence that we can, might be able to bring to our attitude or our thoughts, giving up the grosser form for a more refined one, more still, more quiet. And then the last one, some of you probably are aware of this one, this clenching, which, which I call tough love because it won't sound very loving. <laughs> um, but this is the last resort, right? And some of you know this and some of you have applied it. And it, it's, it, the Buddha says, with teach, teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he should beat down, constrain, and crush the mind with the mind, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by his head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him. <laughs> you put your tongue against the roof of your mouth and bear down. It's essentially you know, crushing the unwholesome states with the wholesome states. The wholesome state is the wisdom factor that knows that you got to get tough. <laughs> this is a really strong, difficult mind state. And sometimes we just have to say, enough, enough. I'm not going to take it anymore, <laughs> right? It's enough. And it works sometimes. It really works. You just, you just get fed up with your mind and you say enough and stop it and walk on. And sometimes you can do that. So um, this one too. We can practice with all these different kinds of antidotes. So essentially, we need to know the mind for what it is. We need to see it for what it is, that it isn't this solid, fixed entity that defines us and defines reality, that it really isn't so solid. And we can work with it. We can transform it. We can be free of these 
very obsessive and difficult states of mind that we find ourselves in. We can work with it. This is a very hopeful, a very hopeful practice. And where is this last piece I wanted to end with? I really want to read this. <laughs> Didn't it make it? Hmm. Well, I have to watch my mind. Didn't make it. I'll read it another time. There's this, um, this wonderful quote from Ajahn Chah where he talks about just having to see the mind for what it really is. That it's really, he says, the mind really isn't anything. It's just phenomena. And we, the more we pay attention, the more we look directly at our mind, we can really see it for what it is. It's empty phenomena, rising and passing. This mind that wants to define us and say, this is who you are. Whether it's even positive, even if it's grand, I don't think it's who you are. And so we can work in all these different ways. So many tools, so many techniques are available to us. So let's just sit for a moment. as I read it, because I just found it. <laughs> just, just the right moment. Ajahn Chah. About this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply nature. The untrained mind gets lost and follows things. It forgets itself. Then when we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever, but really this mind, this trained mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. Just like a leaf that is still as long as no wind blows, if a mind if, if a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. So we train the mind to know those impressions and not get lost in them. Our practice is simply to see the original mind, which is already peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Our practice is simply to see the original mind, which is already peaceful.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.